This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Tonight we are continuing from last week. Oh, first and foremost, we would like to invite everyone to join us, all the women, on our Thursday night's women's only class at 1601 Quentin Road at the BJX location. We are continuing our series from last week. So last week we started speaking about, we, we continued off from the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the story of the Exodus, where we left off two years ago. We continued it last week, and now we're going to continue the story until Matan uh, Torah, until the giving of the Torah. So last week we spoke about the bitter waters and, uh, and, what, and what transpired during that. Six days after we are learning tonight, six days after the Jewish people arrived at Marah, which is the bitterest waters of last week, they arrived at a place called Elim. Now, Elim, there was something fantastic that happened over there, amazing that happened over there. It was a complete desert land. When the Jewish people arrived, it was just like a, like a miracle that happened. Think about it, like just like things just like popped up, and there were tw- there were 70, 70 different palm trees that that just like sprouted instantly, and twelve springs all, you know, happen in that desert area. Imagine you, people are walking in a desert and you see that, you think it would be a mirage or something like, you know, dehydration. But this was actual. All of a sudden, suddenly, out of nowhere, these these springs came out, these these palm trees came uh, came into being. Now, what what is the significance about these numbers? So, the 12 springs correspond to the 12 different uh, tribes of Israel. And the 70 palm trees... Anybody knows why 70? All right, good. Some of the elders, yeah, some of these came The seventy elders, each one corresponding to one another. Now, the question is asked: Like, why did God have to do that? Like, God was making a miracle, so God made a miracle. Then just make it like a huge lake of clear, natural running water, a bunch of palm trees. Why did it have to be specifically twelve different springs, seventy different palm trees? What was this, what was the signifying? So, the the midrashim, the, the 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 sages tell us that each of the Springs corresponded to a different tribe, and each of the palm trees corresponded to a different uh, different one of the elders. What was this comparable? So Rabbi Fran goes and explains this as follows. Imagine you're going to this out-of-town extravagant type of wedding, and everybody's flying in from all of... What do they call it? When the people dr- fly out to weddings? Uh, right, losers. I'm sorry, right, destination <laughs> weddings. I'm sorry. So um, that's what I meant to say. Uh, destination uh, weddings, which I, I, you know, I never, it's like a whole vacation. Everybody, let's go to an island and let's get married in the dirty sand. And this is going to be, uh, you know, amazing. And everyone has to pay $17,000 to go and participate in our, uh, you know, in our enjoyment. So those are pe- those are people... If they're going, as you see, I'm going off tangent. If they're going and they're going to go and pay for your tickets, that's another thing. But if they go and say, okay, listen, you're going to have to come to the Bahamas, Hawaii, whatever it is that their destination wedding is, and uh, and you have to pay for it, that's not nice. You're inviting somebody. Here's an invitation to come fly, you know, 4,000 miles to come and uh, join us in a dirty, wavy uh, beach to participate in our, uh, you know, in our joyous occasion. So, the... How do we get into this? Uh, oh, okay, it's fine. So imagine somebody's going. Imagine somebody's going and inviting all these people into this like far out uh, place, and everyone's coming from all over the world. Now this person has paid for the tickets. Obviously, it's a Jewish story. So they paid for all the tickets, and they go and they say, "Listen, you know, they wanted to sort of." 
in this crazy way, they wanted to make sure everybody feels at home. So, you know, like, uh, and people even know this over here, even though that they're like second or third generation living in this country. But wherever you came from originally, you have a certain type of ethnic food. You have a certain type of things that you like, uh, um, that you even have, you know, certain types of, uh, you know, depending where you come from, your newspapers that you read. So this guy went and created this is that everybody he put them up in different hotels but in the hotels he created for them different foods to that they're used to the 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 all the different types of fruits that they're used to and then he also went and then he created he put in each and every person's room wherever they came from the newspaper of that local right so if they came to um people who came from brooklyn i don't know what people in brooklyn read i I can't say anything online because I know I'm going to get in trouble whatever I say. But let's say you read the Brooklyn Times, right? And you read this, whatever it is, and you're coming into this far out destination island wedding. And in your room, you see the paper that you always read. So it's sort of a way of showing the, the, the loving and the kindness that this person has for you. Like, look, he, after he flew you all out and he gave you everything, he, he organized everything particular to your desires, to your needs. So this is what Hashem was doing. Hashem was doing what? He could have made a, a you know a miracle that just all the 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 water came out and the whatever the food and the fruits and everything came out just like blossom instantly. But what he did was is that everybody got their own section, meaning that God cares about every single person. Oh, you're from the tribe of of Uven. You have this. You have the spring from the tribe of Uven. Meaning that God sort of catered, gave that newspaper to each and every single one of these uh, you know of the Jewish people in the desert. So. During their stay in Elim, the Jewish people went and they actually learned their lesson from what happened in Marah, and they actually studied all the Torah that they learned in, in the, you know, from uh, from Marah, which is uh, from the last class. One of the things that we learned from here, while while they were here and they were learning and studying the Torah, they didn't lack anything. Everything that they wanted, God provided for them. So one of the lessons that we learned over here is that if you do what you need to do for God, God will take care of you. If you don't. You know, may God help you, and you know you're on you're on your own. But if you t- do what you need to, then God will go and and um, and help you. So, eleven days after they uh, reached to this place called Elim, they went and they traveled again. Now, the one one of the miraculous things that happened as well is when they left this place, all the things, all the palm trees, all the day tree, everything that blew that just like popped up just disappeared. So, the second they left, it was like gone. It was back to back to desert. They went and they uh, they arrived at a place called Alush. In this place, at this place is something very um, significant. We I guess we could call it happen. Thirty one days after they left Egypt, they ran out of food. So when the Jewish people left uh, left Egypt, they left with sixty one meals. And each day they ate two meals. That means after 30 days, after the morning meal, by midday, they were out of food already. This happened at, uh, at, at, at Alush over here. Now, the people, when they went and they, um, one of the miraculous things that happened was that the food that they went from, they left from, from Egypt stayed fresh. Now, I could almost guarantee, and I say almost guarantee, they didn't have Ziploc back then. So when you think about food being kept fresh in the olden days, that's gotta be a very, that's a, that's a crazy miracle in itself. Imagine you're going and you leave a cake on your, on your counter. It's only a matter of hours before the thing crusts and crumbles. If it doesn't, then you're nervous about it. They're like, why is this still fresh after all long? Like, what else is inside over here? So, the fact that it stayed fresh for 30 days, can you imagine what it is? Traveling in the desert, which is not the most optimal circumstance that you could have your food remain fresh. After 31 days, it still remained fresh till the last day. 
Now, when the finally, when the when the um, when all the food ran out, the 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 people started complaining. Now, <clears throat> the Mount Law looks at it from a positive angle. He looks at it and says, "Look, at, this is amazing. The Jewish people they had already like let's talk about two or three days prior to when they're running out of food. So imagine you're traveling in the desert, no cell phone, no cars. You're just walking in the desert, and you're walking with your spiritual guide, your spiritual uh, you know leader." I hope this is not practical for anybody today, because if it is, then you're in other... We have a whole different discussion that we need to go through. But imagine you go to the desert, and you have two days left, and you don't know how far you're going to the desert. Wouldn't you say, you know, hey, listen, as a Jewish mother, I have to take care of this, but uh, where is the food going to be for the next... Uh, I don't know, we only have food for two days. What's going to be in the next week? What's going to be in four days? What's going to be with my hungry chungo? My husband eats a cow every week. You know, like, what's going to happen with all the food? Where is it going to be? Yet the Jews didn't complain. They didn't say anything. They kept their mouth shut. Only until the food ran out, all of a sudden they started to complain. However, the complaining, it still was very, very negative. And, and in fact, the Middle Shem goes and brings down that the Erev Rav was heavily represented in this area. Did we speak about it over here last week and how come... You know, they blame always the other people. We spoke about it over here. It was in this class? No one knows. Possibly. Well? Yeah. We did. We did speak about it over here, right? I don't remember where I spoke about it. Okay. Right, like how come all of a sudden that bad thing happens and now the Jews are, the Jews are all special. You know, it's not the Jewish people, it's the Erevah. We like to put, we didn't speak about that actually? No, no. Where did I speak about that then? Okay, so... This is a question that was asked uh, by me somewhere sometime, and I thought I spoke about it in that, this last week, that, uh, you know, so over here is, is another situation where, where the Jewish people complained, and what happened was, is you look in the Midrashim, it says, who was the majority representation of the complaints? It was the Erev Rav, the Egyptians that came along and converted into Judaism and came along to, uh, to accompany the Jewish people to get the Torah. So... I had this question that I asked and says, you know, like, really? Is that what happened? So the chosen people, you know, go out after all this miraculous journey and then they do something wrong. And who do we blame? We point the finger on the, you know, the people like it was them. You know, it was <laughs> the people that came with us. Listen, us, come on. You know, like we're special. You know, like we're just amazing people. It's got to be. It's like, you know, like a mother and a child relationship, you know, Child comes uh, home one day. The principal calls uh, calls up and says, uh, you know, "The child comes home bloody, and the mother's all, you know, scared. he's like, what's going on over here?'" And the child says, "Don't worry, it wasn't my, it wasn't, it's not my blood." So for a second, the mother feels happy, and, and then she's like, "Wait, whose blood is this?" And she's like, "Well," and the little boy's like, "Well, you should have seen the other kid," and you know, it gets a call, phone call from the principal, and be like, "Do you know what you your kid did?" And she was like, first of all." It was probably the other kid's fault. My kid is an angel. You know, like, come on. You know, yeah, he bites erasers off and swallows them, but that's just because he's so smart and he knows the potassium level inside of that. It's not for any other reason. You know how, like, mothers are. So when you go, when you think about it, anybody who's in education knows what I'm talking about. Uh, or a parent. Uh, you go and you look at the story of, you know, Jewish people leaving Israel and uh, leaving, I'm sorry, Egypt and going into, into the desert and, you know, the bad things, oh, we blame the Egypt, the golden calf. Yeah, the heir of Rav. You know, all the complaints in the desert. Yeah, the heir of Rav. All this, the heir. Person that failed my rotas, heir of Rav. You know, like everybody is just the heir of Rav. Like, is that really what going, what's going on? Is that really fear? So, one of the things that, that comes to mind when you, when you have these questions presented to you, is does the Torah put blame on people when they deserve blame? Does the Torah shy away from blame? Now, one thing that you know for sure, if you've even had a, a 
very, very cursory glance at the Torah, you know that the Torah, if someone did something wrong, oh, it says it straight out there. If Moses did something wrong, oh, it says right out there that he did something wrong. If the Jewish people did something wrong, it says it right out there. There's no hiding and shying away. It's not like any other religion or cult that the leader is, is signifying as like an angel. Like, have you ever, please say no, read the New Testament, and it says there, oh, you know what, JC did something terrible, and God was really upset with him. It would never say that over there, because, well, JC's God, oh, whatever, we're going to go on rabbit hole now. But, you know, you're not going to be able to figure out anywhere. Have you ever read the Quran and says that, that Muhammad did something wrong? Are you kidding me? It's like, this guy's an angel. This guy's a, you know, he's a prophet. Everybody, every religion, the, the high, the leaders, the, 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 the rulers of the place always are, are known in a positive sense. But in Judaism, it's not like that. If there was a problem, it was notified. Don't we, though, like, in a certain sense, like, sometimes very, like, like glorify them, like, too much, the rabbis, maybe? the way that like Christians do and Muslims do? Not at all. Uh, in fact, it's just the opposite. It depends. I guess it depends on, on which sect you're talking about. And there's a lot of ways that I can read that question that, yeah. that could be very problematic. And, it doesn't me- and if I think I know what you're saying, then that's a different story in itself. <laughs> okay. um, and that's not correct. The correct way, obviously, you don't say, well, my rabbi, you know what he did last night? You know, like, you don't go and you present the sins, obviously. But what the Torah does, you don't question. And the Torah, many times, goes and says, they did this sin, they did something wrong. You have time and time again where the leaders and the rulers went and they did something wrong. So when the Torah, which has a track record of signifying when someone did something wrong, if they say, hey, by the way, most, the majority of the issues came from this section, you could trust that because they have nothing to hide. If there will be, you know, if, if God wanted everybody to know about this, it would be placed over there. One thing the Torah is known for, it's the truth. It's the emet. There is nothing other than the truth in the Torah. There's no falsehood. There's no falsification of the ideas, making the Jewish people seem so on a high pedestal. The Jewish people are are signified exactly the way that they are. When they're good, they're known as good. When they're bad, they're known as bad. It's as simple and it's black and white. So now, when the Jewish, when the, when the people left and the people started complaining over here, the Midrashim says that, yeah, the majority was, it came from the Erev Rav. However, you know, as it says, majority. So majority means that also the Jewish people were involved in it as, as well. Now what did they complain? They complained, you know, they came into, into a plane. So, so, so into a point in their, in their travels where they ran out of food. They didn't have anything left over and they started complaining. What would you think the complaint would be? Let's pray to God and let's go and maybe we'll, we'll make some, God will make another miracle. But their complaints were not like that. The complaints were, why did, why did God bring us? Why did you bring us over here? Is this because, is this over here to die? It would have been better that we would have died in the darkness plague back in Egypt. Why do we have to come over here? Because the death by starvation is one of the worst deaths possible. So why would he have to die through starvation? Let us in the desert. Let us die in the in the in the plague of of Egypt, in the plague of, of darkness. So the complaints continued, and they even complained about the meat, even though they didn't have meat. But they complained. But we smelled the meat. In Egypt, even though we didn't have it, but we were able to smell it. And we had at least bread in Egypt, even though it was stale or whatever it was. We still had something to eat. So they went and they presented these complaints to Moshe and Aaron. And they went and they were very clear. They were like, by the way, our complaints are not with God. We see what God is capable of, right? After a certain time where you realize the strength of someone, you know not to mess with that person anymore. So they were like, okay, we learned the lesson. We know the situation with God. We know his power. We know his ability. 
But our complaint is with you. Like, what's up with you guys? Like, why are we in the desert? Did we really have 30 days in the desert? Really? Like, God really wanted... We couldn't stay in Egypt? We couldn't be... There was no one there. Like, we could have been over there. We had to come over here where there's no food, there's no water, there's no wells, there's no nothing. We're here in the desert. Maybe you took a wrong turn. Have you ever been there driving somewhere? And maybe it was your parents, maybe it was somebody else. You know, like, oh... What's, this is, by the way, has anybody, does anybody here remember, I don't know, you guys are very young, remember what life was before GPS? No. You guys don't remember? What, you, oh, one person remembers what GPS. You're, I do, because, like, you remember? my dad only, like, got that one. Like, when I was younger, MapQuest. forget, it, I'm talking about before MapQuest, where you had to actually have maps. Oh, no. Like, paper maps. No. Where, recalculates? Yes. Like one thing my wife says all the time says the one thing that's great about Google Maps and about Waze is that it solves so many Shalom Bias problems because every time you know like the wife is over there with a huge map of America and they're like they're traveling this little section in the corner over here and they're like I think you have to go to the 290 IPA for 8 and be like that doesn't exist well it does exist it's in this map over here well there's no sign over here how do you read the sign how could you not know how to drive ask directions I'm not going to ask directions I'm over here I know how to drive I'm back over there and then hi therapist how are you <laughs> no everything is fine yeah everything is great we just have one question you know like my husband's an idiot, you know, like, and, and, goes, and my wife doesn't know how to read the map, you know, like, it goes back and forth and the whole thing, and you picture the, the if somebody ever went on, on you know, I remember even before MapQuest, when I was driving by myself, and I had to go and figure out how to drive places, I would have to write, like, all these, th- I made my own MapQuest before MapQuest came, I'm like, okay, when you come over here, make a right at, like, whatever, I-95, and you have to go, you go, go on and on and on, and there's sometimes where you're driving and you're like, it seems like I am in a different country because I've been driving for like three hours and I should have been taking some exit a long time ago. You know, you don't write how many kilometers. Now it's amazing. You go to, you go, you open up Google Maps, you open up Waze and you drive in 600 feet, you know, make a left. In six, well, it depends. If you're in Israel or in, in uh, America, it works a little bit different. You know, in, in America, the GPS is very calm and relaxed, you know. In 600 feet, make a left. In 500 feet, make a left. In 400 feet, make a left. Until you mute it, usually, right? Yeah. And like, <clears throat> now make a left. And if you miss a turn, exactly. Recal. Don't worry about it. I got this. I'll tell you exactly where to go. Recalculating, right? In Israel, it's a little bit different. Hi. Huh? Not over here. No, I'm sorry. You go. Needs navigation, right? And you go, and uh, in 50 feet, you know, it goes, it says, okay, recalculating, right? Obviously, the joke goes, if you have an Israeli, you know, GPS navigation, if you miss one turn, it's going to curse you out and be like, how are you, you idiot? You know, how could you miss this turn? You know, I am out, you know, like, figure it out yourself. No recalculating for you, right? Or they'll recalculate you to, like, some Arab territory, like, go, oh, good luck on yourself. So, but... Before before navigation, before map, because before maps, you have Moshe and Aaron are traveling in the desert, and all of a sudden they're out of food. One of the first thought possibly be like, you made a wrong turn. We were supposed to go to a place where there was another 12 springs and 70 palm blades. What is going on over here? So they started, they went and they started blaming uh, Moshe and Aaron for going and messing it up. Now Moshe and Aaron went and they sat over there. And they took all the complaints, didn't say anything, and they were listening to all the complaints. Now, while these, uh, you know, angry people are going and demonstrating and, and, and complaining against Moshe and Aaron, 
God came to, to Moshe and, and already gave him the solution. He did, uh, God also will soon see, gave an, uh, a rebuke uh, um, the Jewish people for what they did, but he also gave them the solution. And the solution was as follows. He said that God tells Moshe Rabbeinu that I'm going to rain bread from heaven. And what's interesting is, is that this is going to be a test. This is going to be a test of the bread that they get, to, uh, you know, from heaven, if they're going to follow my Torah or not. And then, you know, the God's instruction goes on. On the sixth day, it's going to rain twice as much. As, so on Shabbat, you don't go and you don't have to follow the, uh, you don't have to pick up the bread that fell from heaven. Now, we're going to get into that in a little bit later. So, Moshe Rabbeinu goes and he tells the people, he says, listen. He says, it's understandable that your food supplies ran out. You didn't have anything left to eat and you needed something to eat. But what's all this about, like, it's better off in Egypt? Let's go back to Egypt? Like, really? Like, is that really better off? Is it really better off to go to Egypt? Psychologically, unfortunately, many of us are in this situation. Uh, you know, and I'm sure many of us could actually relate to this. If you had a very difficult time in your life, and then you look back on it and be like, oh, the good old days. Yeah, that was the good old times. What good old times? Like, you weren't able to put bread on the table. Like, what a good old times. You are abused by who knows what. Like, what's the good... People go... Where this comes into play a lot, where I, the truth is, where I see it come to play a lot, previous relationships. I don't know, I see that a lot. Previous relationship. You know, people have marital problems. And they're like, you know what? The worst thing, well, not the worst thing, there's many worst things that you can say, but one of the really bad things you can say. Be like, you know what? I could have married the right person. I can't believe I married you, and you are causing me all this problem. If I would have married that, oh, how great my life would have been. Now, meanwhile, you're thinking back, of your, I don't know, previous dates or other type, whatever it is that, depending on your religious, uh, you know, affinity to, uh, you know, Judaism is where we can go off on this. But depending on your previous relationship statuses, you're going to be like, you know what? I had something good and I messed it up. I did this and I messed it up. In in essence, you didn't mess anything up because God wanted you to marry this person. God didn't want you to marry that person. But what do people think of? They look at previous relationships, even though it was abusive, it wasn't healthy, it wasn't good, it wasn't beneficial, it was doomed for for destruction, but you look back, oh, remember the good old days. Remember, you never had people, you know, sitting on a stoop, drinking their tea, let's make it PG, right? They're <laughs> drinking their tea and saying, oh, you know, like, you remember the time when we were abused as children? Great times, right? So happy we're in today's day and age. No, people be like, oh, remember the good old days? We're riding a train, cost a dollar. Alright, that was like, nobody here knows even that, right? Like, how old am I? Like, wait, like, I'm trying. Ride, riding a train used to cost, uh, what is it now? 275. 275, yeah. You know what's funny? When I was younger, when I was younger, so there were, we used to listen to a, a thing called When Zadie Was Young, and I'm like, remember when I went on the trolley for a nickel? And I'm like, I remember when I bought two slices of pizza and a Coke and fries for 250. What? Yeah, so I remember two fifty, and then cheese went up. Inflation. Yeah, um, and, and I was like, I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm living through that nickel story now. I'm too young to live through that nickel story now. It should happen in like fifty years. Like, what's going on? But like, when you look back, you're like, oh, like remember the good old days? Well, yeah, well, like you know, back then, minimum wage was also like everything is in relative to what it is. People always make a generalization. People yeah, tend to remember. The good part and not the bad part. Yeah. yeah. So, the, the Jewish people, now, they're in the desert. And they're like, oh, remember the good old days when we were in Egypt? 
What good old days? You are slaves, you are being abused, you are being beaten, you are being murdered. What good old days? But that's how psychologically we work. We remember only the, you know, the good. Comfort versus like... It's not comfort. It's it's running away from reality. It's running away from reality. It really is the essence of, of the, you know, the issues, at, a lot of issues at hand. But in any case, so they go and, um, and, and they, they complain about what happened in Egypt. Now, what people tend to do now, very, very unhealthy, blame others. I don't know if you guys are, you know, aware of this situation. It happens in relationships. It happens when people go off the, off the deck. People were religious and they went off there. Why are you not religious anymore? Well, my rabbi was very strict. Okay, so he was a teacher. That's very good. No, my parents, they hit me. You probably deserved it. You're a loser and you're a, you're a fool. Like, you're, yeah, I, you know, like, I'll probably hit you right now. Like, with all due honesty. Like, you know, the people go and they blame other people for their errors, for their issues. Why do you have such a bad, you know, personality? Well, growing up, I was picked on as a child. So now I pick on others. Like, that doesn't mean anything. That's just putting the blame on others. So what these people were trying to do, the people in the desert, they were putting the blame on Moshe and Aaron. I was like, oh, Moshe and Aaron, you guys didn't look at your navigation properly. And you took a wrong turn. And now we have no food. So thank you very much for all that. We could have been done, you know, stayed in, in Egypt for that. So Moshe Rabbeinu responded and said, like, really? Do you really think that it was us? That took you, we took you out of Egypt, like we made all the miracles, we were the ones, you think even we can orchestrate, you know, the itinerary for millions of people through the desert? It's like we're following exactly whatever that God told us to do. So as long as we're following it, there's nothing, there's nothing about, you know, about us that we did anything. And in fact, Moshe and Allah says we're nothing. It's not like we could say thank you. We could take credit for this. It's not like we could say, oh, you know what, by the way, I always thought I'd drink only a cup of water. Now I realize that I'm probably drinking a few cups <laughs> before I finish this. So, but thank you. So, the, <clears throat> so what happened was Moshe Rabbeinu goes on, continues the message, and it says, listen. So the next 24 hours are going to be very crucial. You guys are going to have, you're going to see such amazing wonders that you've never seen before in your life. In the evening tomorrow, you're going to have something that's going to fly out from the heavens. It's going to be meat that's going to fly out from the heavens. It's going to be known as slop, quail. It's gonna, these birds are gonna fly out from heaven, and you're gonna eat, you're gonna be able to eat your meat. And they, and Moshe and Aaron goes and says, you know, Hashem is being kind to you. Even though you don't deserve it and you complain, God is gonna give you meat to show you that God is able to feed you in the desert with meat, with whatever it is that you, that you want. And even though they went and they didn't deserve it, and they didn't deserve it, God went and gave it to them, but He gave it to the, in a way that they didn't fully appreciate it, and we'll soon see why. What? They did have animals, which is one of the complaints as well. Very good. Moshe Rabbeinu said, listen, you guys have many animals. So you didn't have any meat. You could go and, and slaughter. Rather, they didn't want to slaughter the animals, right? They wanted to go, you know, it's the same, you know, same concept. You have uh, somebody that goes on a picnic and they prepared amazing amount of meats and great food. But then they realize that Hatzalah is doing a thing in Marine Park, whatever it is, right? And they're giving out... Popcorn and stale bread for everybody who wants. Whatever, that's all it does, right? Whatever, another organization, right? They give out this. So what do you do? Be like, we'll save the meat, you know? Like, that's the free stuff. We want to take some of that. We don't want, we could save this for later. So they go and they grab everything else. So the Jewish people back then, you're right, they did have, they had meat, they had their animals, but they didn't want it. They didn't want to use it up. So they wanted to go and, and get, get it somehow from, uh, from God. So, Moshe Rabbeinu says you're gonna have you're gonna have meat. These birds are gonna fly out from heaven, and you're gonna have plenty of meat to eat. But you're gonna have to prepare it very quickly. It's not gonna stay there for long. It's not you know there's there's a lot of criteria that's gonna come into play over here because God is gonna show you that He's not happy with what your request was with bread. Yeah, 
That you're that you're you're right. With the with the necessities of life, what you need, God is going to give you and it's full of his glory. You're going to see the amazing things that's going to happen. But with the meat, with the extra stuff, the ones that you're showing that you're all involved in all the luxuries of life, God is going to show you what he really what he really means in that. What he really appreciates, you know, in these in these matters. So after Moshe Rabbeinu went and spoke, the people realized that they stepped over the bounds. They realized everything that happened, so they were very embarrassed. They were very, you know, they looked down. They, you know, they, they knew that they messed up again. So they went and they decided they wanted to do tshuva, and they went and they repented, and they repented and they begged Hashem for forgiveness. The clouds of glory, the Ananiah Kavod, reappeared and came back to the Jewish people to show them that God accepted your your uh, your, forg- your repentance and your you are forgiven. That evening became dark, and, you know, like, <clears throat> you couldn't see anything. And all of a sudden, like, birds started falling off, you know, into the, you know, into the ground. And they started, there was so much birds that came from like, out of nowhere, and they just landed all over. They came piles and piles of birds, to the extent that it was literally a scene that you can't even picture in, in reality. You have to picture it as a fictional idea that they did in Hollywood or something. And there was birds that were so high that the people, when they wanted to grab the bird or capture the bird, all they had to do was stick their hands out. They didn't have to turn around, they didn't have to bend down, they didn't have to... Pre- there was so much that all they had to do was just grab, stick their hands and grab it and they had enough. They had, they had so much that the pile of birds that came, and the birds were still alive, the pile of birds that came, they were able to see it in days travel in the desert. From a day's travel away, you see piles and piles of, of, of birds. So, the people went, and the weak, the strong, everybody was able to, you know, to grab, a, 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 you know, a lot, a lot of meat. The, the, the concept of this meat, this quail, this slav, it had a similar taste to like meat and fish. It had like that type of texture, but it depended on who ate them on their level of appreciation of enjoyment of that meat. So the righteous people were able to enjoy it and tasted really good and tasted good and tasted, you know, beneficial and healthy and and, and plump and delicious and llama ray style, right? A high style. If they they were wicked, then the meat tasted thorny and was very difficult to eat. So it was it was miraculous over here. It, depending on who ate it, is how the level of the meat tasted. So the right, very similar to the, to the situation with man. So the by the morning, Moshe Rabbeinu said there was so much meat. They thought like, okay, we'll have so much. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, no, no. By the morning, it's all going to disappear. Why? Because then it's going to then there's going to be a, a you know a um, a different miracle that's going to come is going to be the miracle of the man, the miracle of the bread from heaven. Why did like Hashem reward them like at all if, if they were like complaining so much? So they got the reward in a sense, but they didn't. They weren't able to utilize it to the full extent. So one of the things was God was showing them, and this is something that you see time and time again. From the Exodus until Matan Torah, God is proving them to, to them something. And this is a proof that's not only for that time, day and age, it's a proof for all eternity. That God, if He wants and if you deserve it, you'll be taken care of. Otherwise, you know, your own, your own thing. But God has the capabilities to do anything. You, you want meat in the desert? How are you going to get meat in the desert? God is going to make so many birds fly, you're not going to know what to do with that meat. So like, He had the ability, but now that you have it, some of you are going to enjoy it, some of you are not. Which makes that miracle so much more. Which makes the point come across so much stronger as well. Where is this part like, written? Like, how do we know it? First of all, this part is written, in, the, the Slav is written straight up in the Torah. But the, the, the underlying story is based on the Slav Midrashim. Slav is birds, yeah. The quail. 
So the underlining, um, the underlining ideas of where we're going and where uh, um, all the back, that's the Midrashim, the Gemara, the Zohar, Kabbalah, there's different, I'm, yeah, you guys are coming over here, you're getting a full, uh, you know, buffet of, of, you know, you're not getting, I'm not reading art school, right? So, okay, so now, if I would, probably no one would understand, because we'll probably have to say like that hard word we mentioned before, eclectistis, right? you know. Okay, so now, um, the, by the morning, by the morning, the entire quail disappeared. So imagine the amount of volume of birds that they had. By the morning, everything was gone. And here we can begin the story of the man. So the story of the man, <clears throat> before I even begin with this story, there is a tradition, there is a segula, if we, uh, we should call it that, uh, a segula, that if somebody goes and reads the, the, the portion of the man, is guaranteed that he would not, uh, he, he would have sufficient livelihood. He would have panasa. And it's God that people do after they pray shacharit, after they finish praying, that they read the section of the man, and that is a skula that a person will never have, uh, any deficiencies in panasa. We'll always have something to, to be able to, to, to live. So there's different things. You read it once. To some people, you know, the, the real essence of it is reading it twice with talgum, talgum. But whatever it is, it's a skula that's very important. So now let's begin with the story of, of the man. Now, the, <clears throat> the the story of the man begins. It was really a test. It, God tested the Jewish people. The uh, to understand this 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 idea of a test. You know, people think the you know people that are wealthy, good businessmen. They're very intelligent. They're good negotiators. They know how to make deals. I may be talking about a present, whatever it is, right? They know how. To, but the real truth is, is that all this does not does not spell wealth. If you have good negotiation skills, good talking skills, very intelligent, know how to make business deals, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be successful in business. At the end of the day, it all depends on God. If God will want you to grant you wealth, then you will have wealth. You could be the dumbest businessman, the worst negotiator, the most unintelligent person possible, and you will still be very successful. And at the same point in time, you could be the most intelligent, the best negotiator, best of everything, and and be broke. Be sitting at the corner and be overqualified for every job that you you ever, you ever, you ever try to get. So, the thing that we learn from the man is that everything depends at, uh, you know, on God. But one of the, what was the test was? The test was that God said, listen, I'm going to give you everything that you need. You're going to have food come in from heaven that all your responsibilities are taken. Now, the Jewish people, their responsibility is to follow the Torah. Are you going to learn the Torah? Are you going to follow? Now that you have all the conveniences, all the things that everything that you want, do you follow the Torah? Now that you live in an American life where you have the ability to work from nine to five, you have the ability to pay your bills, you have the ability to do this, do you follow the Torah? Or do you spend your weekends breaking the Shabbat, going to the movies, uh, you know, doing drugs, going into, where is your, what is it going to be? When you have everything, and by everything, it means all your necessities, how are you going to relate to, to, you know, to Judaism? Are you going to keep the laws or are you going to go and break the laws? So, the people that went, the Jewish people that went and spent the time, now that they had the man, learning the Torah, following the Torah, that means that all the other previous times that they weren't able to follow the Torah, means that they really did want to, they just couldn't. It was beyond their capabilities. It was beyond their abilities to go and follow the Torah. However, those people that had the man, they have everything, they have the money, they're wealthy, and they're not following the Torah, that just shows that they're not interested. They're not interested in Torah, they're not interested in God, they're not interested in religion, they just want to live their life and enjoy the, enjoy the life. So, being that the main task of the Jewish people was to follow the Torah, God was testing them. 
Let's see how are you going to follow Torah now. You only have a few commandments. The commandments that we mentioned last week and Marah, of all the commandments that God gave over there. Are you going to follow the few commandments that you have now? If you do, okay, then we have hope then when you get to Torah. But if you don't, if you're not able to follow the simple few commandments that you have now, what's going to be in the, you know, the time when you get the whole Torah? And the truth is, we could say that nowadays as well. A majority of the mitzvot that we have, we're not able to do. Because what? It relates to Jerusalem. It relates to the temple. We're not able to do it. But the minority of the mitzvot that we are able to do, the, the, the keeping kosher, keeping the Torah, keeping Shabbat, keeping everything that you need to do, do you keep it what you can? If you do, oh, well, then let's see what happens when Mashiach comes. Then you have a very good chance of, 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 of surviving that. But if you can't even keep Judaism and keep the Torah before Mashiach comes, when we have all that, what chance do you have? Here we have a little bit of a hintling to understanding, like who is going to make it in the time Mashiach comes? Who is not going to make survive in the times of, of Gogumagog, in the times of all the, the destruction that's going to happen over there? Hopefully it won't happen. But, whatever it is, may it happen speedily in our days. The, the merit of the man is based off three ideas. The main, the main merit of the man, anybody know? Moshe Rabbeinu. Good job. Thank you. Um, so Moshe Rabbeinu, gotta make people think online that we have, uh, you know, people that know anything here. I'm just kidding. Everybody here knows a lot. Okay. So the, um, it was the merit of the man that Moshe, the, it was the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu that the man came. Okay. See what happens when I don't speak correctly. And when I, people are coming to class, May you all, everybody here who joined the class, may you all be blessed a thousand times. May God grant you healthy lives. Lives of Panasa. Lives of healthy children going the way of Torah. You have Nachat with you. And everything should only be good in your lives. Okay. So now, the, Amen. So, the, the the merit of who was, um, was it? So Moshe Rabbeinu was, was the main merit. Was, how do we know this is the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu? Because first of all, God told Moshe Rabbeinu, He says, I will make bread rain down for you. To Moshe, when he was speaking to Moshe Rabbeinu, why didn't he say I make bread rain, uh, bread rain down for them, for the Jewish people? Because it was the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu. And in fact, when Moshe Rabbeinu died on the 7th of Adal, and by the way, I made a mistake, I think in one of my classes on the Exodus, I said that Moshe Rabbeinu died on the 6th of Adal, it's the 7th of Adal. When he died on the 7th of Adal, the man stopped. The, 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 Bread from heaven stopped. The, the miracle was is that the last final bread that they had lasted for 39 days until when they needed, you know, they had the ability to get more. But but the actual bread falling from heaven was in the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu. There was also another merit that came to play, and that's Avraham Avinu. When Avraham, Avraham Avinu went and he came and he gave food to the angels that came to visit him after he had the circumcision. So in the merit of that, the food came down to the Jewish people as well. And finally, the third uh, merit that it came in, is it came in actually in the merit of the Jewish people. The Jewish people went, and they learned the, the portions that they were supposed to learn, that they, they were taught in Marah. They went and they learned it during this time. So, because of that, they also went, and they also had the merit to have the man. So now, Moshe Rabbeinu was Moshe Rabbeinu that he merited. He did like everything. There was nothing there. There was not, to my, to my knowledge, it was not like one thing that he did and because of that. But it was because of Moshe's merit that everything, as such a righteous person, came, um, or the, the man. We have the Bel Shemiyam, the clouds, uh, the, the, the well of Miriam. We have also the clouds of glory from Aaron. We have different, you know, people that were very righteous and the merit of them came into different things. The truth is, I'm sure there's a lot to speak about each and every single topic that might be a good topic for one, one of the classes. So, 
so now we're going back to 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 the time and to where we are in the in the story. So 31 days left after the Jewish people uh, left Egypt, and then for the first time that morning, this magical bread fell from heaven. This man fell from heaven, and this fell every single day except for Shabbat for 40 years. This it, it rained in uh, it rained the man. So the the man was something very interesting. Man was one of the things that were created. On Erev Shabbat, so the sixth day on the twilight of creation, God created God created a number of things that were created like the last minute. If you want to look at the full uh, list of it, it's in, in Pirkei Avot, chapter five, uh, Mishnah six. But some of the things was was the the mouth of the earth that swallowed Korach. That also was created on the on, on the Benesh uh, the, the the twilight of of the sixth day of creation, right before Shabbat. And also you have the Miriam's Miriam's well, where the Jews left. The, also the boulder that Moshe struck, that all the water came out. You also had the donkey of Bilam that spoke, was also created at that time. You had the rainbow. You had the staff of Moshe Rabbeinu. You have obviously the man, like we mentioned. You have the Shamir worm. Anybody know what the Shamir worm was? Oh, very good. Okay, see? You guys do good. Right. So it was the Shamir worm was a worm that was able to cut very, very strong material without using metals. So Shlomo Melch used it for the Beth Migdash. It was a very, very uh, a powerful um, worm that would be able to utilize heavy machinery without utilizing heavy machinery, which was, was needed for the Beth HaMikdash. So um, there was also the, the Shadim is mentioned that is, is, was created during this time, the um, and also the burial place of Moshe. If you want to go, there's a few other things that's mentioned. You can look at the, in the Mishnah Pekeh about. So man, the man was one of the things that were created during this time. The man, even though it was created on this, the you know the sixth day of creation, it did not materialize into the world until this day. Until the Jews needed it, that's when it, that's when it materialized. Now, the essence of the man was very very spiritual. It was known as the bread of angels. It wasn't known as a physical thing. And in fact, you'll see as it came down, it had to like transform its qualities from a spiritual aspect to somewhat of a physical thing. So what happened was is that. When the morning came for the first man to fall out, and this is what happened every time the man fell, there was a strong wind that passed through the desert. And this wind came from Gan Eden. It came from the Garden of Eden, and it went and it's, went through the Garden of Eden and then through the desert. And it sort of like wiped the desert clean. It sort of like flattened out. Have you ever, has anybody here ever worked, walked in a desert and there was a wind, and then you look back, you don't have any footsteps anymore? It's something really, uh, you know, amazing. And uh, if you go to Israel, if you, you know, go anywhere in the desert, you, you get to see this at times. That it's able to just like swipe the slate, uh, you know, slate clean. So the man came, I mean, the, the wind came, and it just like cleaned all the dirt, all the gar, everything. It cleaned the floor of of the desert. And once it cleaned the, the floor of the desert, the it actually, you know, there was dew that fell from from heaven. It was so the ground was so clean that you were able to see your own reflection on it. That's how clean it, that's how clean it was. So what happened was is that at the dawn, after the wind came in, and then dew fell down from heaven, the dew sort of was very, it was frozen. So it sort of solidified and it froze over it. And then the man started coming down. Then the man came through, through the cloud, when it came through the spiritual clouds. It came through the, the heavenly spheres. It came through a place called known as the Shachakim. And when it came through this, it sort of transfer, transformed itself from a spiritual thing to somewhat of a physical, a physical thing. And as it came down, it, it transformed more into, into a physical form. And then it landed on the dew that fell into the desert. And when it landed, it was warm, it was ready to eat, just like it came out of the oven. The, one of the things, yeah? Did it, because it, it was such a, like, holy food, um, did it, like, make them, like, more, like... 
Yes. Like, like on like a higher like level. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get to that. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're gonna get to that. So, um, so the 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 dew came down. It coated it coated it, it basically. So the wind came in, cleaned the desert floor, and then the dew came down and froze. So it was like it was completely clean. And then the month then the month from heaven fell down. And once it fell down onto the onto the floor, another dew fell from heaven and coated it. So it was like sandwiched in, knowing that it was clean, healthy, very, you know, like it would have gotten an ACE plus rating according to the was the Department of Health, whoever gives the ratings. So the, the Department of Health will give it A plus. So they don't give even A plus, they just give ACE. But this one they would have given A plus. So one of the miracles also is that when rain falls, rain falls, it makes noise, right? You hear the rain falling. Uh, hail, you hear the rain, you know, the hail falling. Even, you know, snow at sometimes, you know, you hear the snow, you know, the snow falling. The mountain fell in complete silence. It was like, you know, it was like floated down. And what you see with the texture of Manwas, it was a miracle how it just floated down in complete silence. So you have over here the there was a, a lo, there was dew on the bottom, there was dew on the top, and then you had the man in the middle. This is why on Shabbat we have the challah in the middle, we have a covering under the challah board, and then you have a covering on top, similar to the man also that it was covered below and it was covered above. So now the the man was also what was like the lechem apanim, was the, the the showbread in the time of the temple. The the kohanim had the bread in the uh, in the temple over there on the shulchan, and it, it, these these uh, bread never remained stale. They remained fresh for eight days straight. So so to the man always remained fresh, always remained hot, just like it came out of the oven. Now the man looked like a round disc that had a hard crust on the outside and soft in the inside. And it was white with like a yellowish type of goldish tinge, uh, you know, to it. So that, that was the texture of, uh, you know, of the man. Now the, you, some people go and explain it to similar to like a biscuit type of, uh, you know, form. The, the miracle here was that God made a miracle that the food came from heaven. Usually, where does the food come from? It comes from the ground. You plant in the ground and it grows up. God reversed everything. Now, God could have made a miracle that wheat kernels could have grown from the ground and they would have had wheat. That would have been a crazy miracle. You're going in the desert and there's wheat kernels. But God was showing them something. Like, look at the abilities that God had. God was showing also the Jewish people, look how special you are. Instead of making a regular miracle, I'm going to take a miracle and I'm going to reverse it and make it a double miracle. Instead of having food come from the ground, I'm going to come from heaven. So God was showing the Jews time and time again. 12 springs, 70 palm trees, showing them, look what, how special you are. Instead of having regular food, I'm having food now come from heaven and reversing, reversing the order. The way that the food came, the way that the, um, the man fell down, it was really tailored to the individual that was collecting it. So the wicked people had to go and spend a lot of time in preparation to go and prepare the man. However, the, the righteous people had to spend no time. It came freshly baked out of the oven. Even the pleasure is dependent on your level of spirituality. So if you are on a high level, you enjoy the, the, the man to a much greater level as if you are in a lower, as opposed to a lower level. So for example, Yehoshua, he was Yeshua Benun, he went and he was, he had the pleasure from the man as, as if it was equal to combined all the pleasures of all the Jewish people when they ate the man. That was the, the, the level of the, the comparability. So the higher level that you are, the more that you, uh, that you enjoyed it. So, the man felt when sunrise, when 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 the sun came up and the sunrise came, the, the the sun evaporated the top layer. So the Jewish people didn't even have to like break the top layer in order to get the man. It was there and ready made for them, but it was protected until they came. It's like you go to a bakery and you see like you know this freshly baked stuff right in the front. You'd be like, wait, why isn't it in a bag? 
And it should be in a bag so it doesn't get stale. Manure oil is so freshly baked that it doesn't need to be in a bag. It just came out of the oven right now. Any bakery, you go to, you ask them when this came out. Just, like, when did you come in? Like, right before that. Like, that's when it came out. Like, the month felt as if it just came out of the oven. So, they go outside. The Jewish people go outside. And they see, you know, like, this, like, stuff on the ground. And they're like, what is this? And they use the, the native language that they had, was, which is the Egyptian. They, in Egyptian, what is it is known as manhu. What is this? Manhu, what, what is this? So Moshe Rabbeinu, they could go over to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, Manhu, what, what, what's this? And Moshe Rabbeinu, this is the, you know, the bread that God gave you. It's a gift that God gave you. That this is going to be the way that God's going to feed you. And you're going to go and don't worry about it. It's safe and you're able to go and, and eat it. So over time, the, what was originally known as the bread of angels turned out to be man. Why did it came with the man? Because it came out from what they used to ask him, man who? What is it? Man who? Man, 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 who? Man, who? Man, 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 it's man. You know, this is how generally things come into, uh, you know, play, even nicknames, even people, just in general, that's how, you know, uh, you know, things come into, uh, it's being named. So now, this uh, ended up uh, being called the man. As, as the day progressed, now, the, there was a level, so there was do on the bottom, then man, and then you had dew. But the dew eventually evaporated, and then the man was there. But then the man kept on falling. It didn't stop when the dew covered it. It kept on falling and falling and falling, to the point that there was so much man that there was enough man that rained down every single day that the Jews were in the desert for 40 years. It was enough man, just one day, enough to survive the Jewish nation in the desert for 2,000 years. That's how much man you're talking about. There were mountains of man that you were able to see it in the distance. In the desert, you were able to see the mountains of, uh, of man. Now, the Jewish people didn't realize they weren't able to keep it to the next day. They thought, the initial response was like, okay, like this is our food for our stay in the duration of the desert. Until Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, no, no. He says, what you see over here may only be eaten today. You're not allowed to save anything for tomorrow. Everything tomorrow has to go, you know, and we'll soon see where it goes. You're not allowed to save anything for, uh, you know, for tomorrow. So, one of the miraculous displays that happened is that after this like crazy amount of manna fell down, the, by the time the sun hit the midpoint, it started the heat of the sun melted all the man. That it turned into like a river of man fluid, liquid, and this actually went into the Mediterranean Sea. The river was so deep because it was so much that was that was melting that you were able to swim across it. Like that's what talk about a pool in your backyard in the desert, right? They were able to go and swim across it. They have you know the, you. I can't even begin to, to describe like the, the the amount of man that they had over there. So, the righteous. Why, like, if they couldn't save it, why didn't God just, just like make like custom portions instead of like making? So he will. So you'll soon see. It. He 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 kind of did do that. So the righteous Jews they woke up early. Righteous Jews in generally wake up early, right? Woke up early. And uh, within the first two hours of the day, and they saw all the man. The less righteous Jews woke up a little bit later, you know, within, let's say, third and fourth hour. The lazy Jews, by the time they woke up after the fourth hour, the man already melted, and it was all gone. And the miraculous thing happened that by the time... What? No, they weren't. They, were, they, they didn't drink it. The, um, we'll soon see who drank it and what, to what extent that was. But what happened was, by the time that the lazy Jews woke up, there was no man left. They were like, they just like, you know, woke up after they snoozed for like 17,000 times. And they finally get up and there's no, there's no man left. What the miracle that happened was is that there was so much man that when it melted, it melted to the extent of point in time that only there was enough for an uh, Omer measure. Think about like a little bit like two kilo, like, uh, um, was it one kilo? 
they're talking about like two pounds of worth of man that was that was uh, you know sufficient for the for the two meals for the day per person. An omer an omer uh, measurement. There was an omer measurement that was available for each person. Everything addition to that all melted. So when the when the lazy people woke up and woke up very late, they went hungry. They didn't have any food. They weren't able to collect any food for that day. They had to go based on donations, like collecting some money, you have some money. You know, like, and it went on to get some people didn't want to eat so much. They gave them donation of the, you know, of the money. The, the dew that fell down also, it, it watered the, the desert to the point that it was, it instantly sprouted grass for the vegetation for the animals. And no matter how much the animals ate, by the next day, it was a full set of grass over there. You know, generally when you have, if anybody here has ever been a shepherd, so um, once you're doing your shepherd stuff, you have you finish the grass in the one area, you have to go to the other area until the other parts go back. Over here, from day to day, it kept on regrowing because of the of the dew that fell. So the as the man melted and it fell into like these streams, the animals came and they want they drank from the man, the liquid man. And in fact, it wasn't only the Jewish animals, it was other animals as well. Other animals came from all over and they saw the water and they started drinking it. And when the non-Jews went and captured these animals, they tasted these, they tasted, these animals tasted different because they drank from the man. And they were able to taste it to that extent. And in fact, if, not, if, a, if a Gentile went and tried to eat the man, it tasted bitter to them. We'll soon see what happened with the Erev Rav. But the, the Gentiles, when they ate it, they tasted bitter. But when did they appreciate the man? When they ate the animals that they caught that drank from the streams of the melted man. So, the way that it worked with the man is it depended also on your, on your righteous level. For the righteous people, it fell right on your doorstep. You woke up in the morning, man delivery, ding dong, you have over here a full set of, of you know, buffet of man. For the less righteous people, they had to go and they had to travel a little bit further to go and get it. For the, for the wicked people, they had to travel very, very far to get it. And when they had to travel very far, the text, the taste, everything was different. Like, so the righteous people, it was fresh as just as it came out of the oven and it stayed fresh the entire day. For the less righteous people, they had to walk a little bit further and it was less fresh. For the wicked people, they had to walk really far and they had to, it was like, kernels of grain that they had to go and they grind it that they had water they had to go and through the whole process and make and make them and make the bread that they had after all that it tasted like regular bread so depending on your righteous level was depending on, on where it landed and how it tasted to you the one of the reasons that God did this is that the wicked people you know when they have a lot of time they're up to no good so I let them be busy making man all day so this way they're not going to have any mischief I remember when I was in 6th grade there was a Guy in my class, a guy, a kid. It was a kid in my class that, whatever, he had some, some like you know, like situ, you know, situations. Let's call it. And every time, like the rabbi would see that he's getting too, you know, like heated up, he says, "Okay, okay, okay, hey, listen, go to the basement and check if the hot water is running." And he would say that every time, and the guy would be like, "Okay, fine." And he would get up, he would go downstairs to the basement, come back up like two, three minutes later. Says, yeah, there's hot water in the basement. The rabbi says, okay, good, take a seat. By that time, the kid was, you know, quiet already and was calm. He wasn't causing any problems over there. I still remember to this, you know, to this day. So, um, what? You do the same thing? Check if the hot water is running next door. In Afghanistan, tell me if there's running water. Right, you distract them so they, so they don't, he was a very hot-headed kid. Um, so, uh, I don't know where he is nowadays. I, you know, I haven't heard from him from, you know, maybe like 20 years. But um, I'm very curious to see what happened with it. But he, I remember the rabbi always just send them down, downstairs to the basement, go downstairs and see if there's hot water. And he would go. He wouldn't ask any questions. He would go, you know, a few times a day to check if the hot water is running. So, <laughs> what? 
maybe if he listens to it, I hope he reaches out to me. I'm very curious to see how he's doing. I hope he's all as well. So, the what, what God did was, is God went and he wanted to keep the, the wicked people busy. If you kept them busy, they're not going to do any, any you're not going to cause any problems. But in essence, really, this was all a test. This one of the things that God told him to do is is that you're collect, you have so much money, but you're only allowed to collect for one day's worth, an omer per person. Anything extra, you're not allowed to collect. This is what test. Are you going to follow God? Are you not going to follow God? So, and by the way, the vo- the volume that it was two kilos. So it's uh two kilos. That's two by two. That's four point four pounds of of man that they would be able to keep per person every single day. So the if you look in the Psukim in the Torah on this in Exodus chapter sixteen verse sixteen the this is the thing that God went and commanded you. And what did God command? God commanded that every person collects one omer per day, depending on the amount of persons per the household. So this pasuk, the Mount Laws brings down, that has the entire Hebrew alphabet in this one pasuk, meaning that if somebody goes and immerses himself in the Torah, which is what the Hebrew alphabet was written on, uh, written from, and you immerse yourself, then you won't have to worry about panasa, you'll get your livelihood without any toil. Now people go, and uh, people who, let's say if somebody doesn't have a business, they're in the pre-business stage, or the post-business stage, or they're looking, they don't have anything. What do they do? They're required to sit and learn Torah. What if somebody has enough money, he is also required to go and sit and learn Torah. There are some people that say, listen, how can I leave my business? I can't, if I leave my business, I'm going to lose money. So God says, you know what you tell to those people? Those people that says, oh, I need to go and work, I can't, I don't have time to learn Torah. Show that God says, show them the man. Show them the, the section of the Torah of the man, which is why you begin to see why the, it's a school of Panasa. Show them the section of the man. The man, God says, I could, I could feed somebody regardless of whatever they do. Regardless of how much they work and what they do, I'm able to feed them. And people are, this is really a requirement. If somebody needs to work, which is, you know, a requirement, you do need to work, then do you learn in the morning before you go to work? Do you, do you learn at night before you go, uh, after, before you go to sleep, after you go to work? So, you, you have people that either they're not religious or they're very, very modern or they don't, they don't bother with learning Torah and they, they decide that they're going to focus their entire life on learning, on, on working. So they're going and they're waking up very early and they're working very long hours and they're working very late hours and they're, they barely see the family, they barely see anything and they think that this is the way that they're going to make money. But in essence, the Torah tells us that these people, they're, all their work is in vain. God can give you the same panasa if you work for 12 hours a day, if you work for 8 hours a day. The extra work is not going to give you extra panasa. In fact, this is what it says in Mishlei, in Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 22. It says, Hashem hit The blessing of God is what's going to make you wealthy. The riches is not going to come in. The more toil that you bring won't bring, won't bring anything, won't bring any, any riches. Obviously, you have to do yishtalut. You have to go and sit and work. You can't expect to sit at home, smoke pot, and play video games and expect, like, oh, listen, I have a wound. i the God that he's going to provide me for, for food. No, no, you have to do yishtalut. But what are you doing when you're not doing yishtalut? Are you learning or are you relaxing in front of the TV? Are you learning or are you reading the paper? Are you learning or are you going and you're, you know, fell on Facebook and what is that called? Stalking everybody that you possibly know. Or you're reading the news because you're you know, going to need to do a press conference in the cooler next tomorrow. Yeah. So if someone decides to be a full-time learner, they can just believe that Depends on their level of learning. There are people that are full-time learning that are full-time cooler people. They make sure everything is kosher around the cooler. 24-7. They're always there. And there are some people that are going and they're sitting and they're actually learning a lot. Those people that are sitting and actually learning a lot, God will take care of them. This is, there's a proof in, you go to Israel, or even over here in America, you have people that sit and learn Torah all day. Yes, it's difficult, depending on the level. We're not God, we cannot just... They're happy. So define poor. 
like, financially, so yeah. they can't go on a yacht? No, like a lot of them don't have like money for like basic things. So it depends. So those are the people that you have the responsibility to go and help them. But the majority of them somehow survive. How? Only God knows. And, I, and I've said this before. I've spoken to people, you know, that, that live in Kolo, that every month, according to, to, like, nature, they should not be surviving. There are people that are down hundreds of dollars every month before the month closes. And every month they survive. And you have people that are working three jobs. And you have people that barely open a sefa and they can't make ends meet. Yet you have here someone who's learning, you know, all day learning Torah. The wife works a little bit and stays home with the children. And yet they somehow, somehow they make it, they make ends meet. So yes, you'll always see situations where people will have that, whatever it is. I'm not God's accountant. I don't know the reason behind it. But the general idea that what God says, if you do what God asks you to do, God will take care of you. Promise. If you don't, then you're on your own. You want, you think you're smart. You think your college degree is going to get you a panasa. You think, uh, you know, your, your connection is going to get you a panasa. Oh, then fine. Go see how your connections do. But if you go and you follow God with that munami dechan, that's why even the wealthy have a requirement. They have to pray for panasa. Why? Because it shows you the level of faith that you're supposed to have. So now, the, the people that go and, and they end up, you know, investing everything in this world. They invest, they go, there's a certain profession. I'm going to say it. It, it might be wrong, but I'm going to say it just because I know you know, uh, um, enough people in it, enough people about it that think this way. And that's the law profession. Anybody here going to be a lawyer? No. Okay. So, um, the, the law profession, if you want to make it big, if you want to get into the top firms, you have to put in your hours. You have to put in the billing cycles. You have to, you, you have to put in, you're talking about you don't see your family. Ever. You, usually you say, okay, until you make it, then you don't see it. No. I've spoken to people that are partners in law firms. They still don't see the families. They're still working around the clock. They're still working, you know, 18 hours a day. You know, you know, people that, that they work, they work from the morning till night, and they come home for dinner, and then they're working till 10 o'clock again. You know, and that's already in a high level, you know, a position in a law firm. They think that what? The more hours I clock in, the more I'm going to be able to build, the more I'm going to be able to make. And that's the, the, you know, the concept that you're supposed to do. And God says, no, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with that. You have to do your shtadut. But you really, your purpose in this world is not to, is, is not to go and chase after this and chase after that. Your purpose in this world is to grow spiritually. If you're not messing, you want to try this way, go see how it works. But really, in essence, the sages tell us that the world, the, the day is, is comprised of 24 hours. You're supposed to split it into three. Take 24 divided by 3, you have 8 hours uh, in 3 sections. So the first 8 hours, you eat, you drink, and you sleep. You do everything that you need to do in the physical sense. The next 8 hours, you work. You have an 8 hour a day, you work. The final 8 hours, you're supposed to be learning Torah. You're supposed to be doing the commandments that you're supposed to, including learning and davening and making it, everything, that's supposed to be the final 8 hours. That's really the, the, the way that it's supposed to be. And in fact, the, the, you know, in the, in the olden days, they had righteous people, that's what they did. They worked a little bit, and then they studied a lot. And they were success, they had success both in their studies, and they had success as well in their, in their, uh, uh, in their in their work as well, and then you have people nowadays that they work nonstop. They put twenty four hour days, and they 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 don't see their family, they don't see anything. Those are the type of people. And you just say nista here, nista hain. They don't get not over here and not over there. They don't get this world, and they don't get the next world. They come and they don't open a book maybe once a week. They don't open. They don't hear a Torah class uh, also maybe once every two weeks, and they don't do anything. And what are they left with? They're left with nothing in this world and nothing in the next world. The biggest kicker is that. That's the biggest kicker that you don't have if you're going and you're working and you're making a you know. A, you're very very, very successful. Okay, at least you have this world. Even though it's nothing compared to the next one, but at least you have something. But if you have nothing here and nothing there, then what did you gain after everything? Everything is nothing. Now, 
I gotta be very, very, very clear. Like you have to do your shtalut. You have to, if you're in business, you have to go and do your things that you need to do in business. You have to be, a, you know, things. Don't be lazy. You have to be aggressive. You have to be a smart businessman. You have to go through things. But there is, and this is really we're gonna begin, when we're gonna speak about it now. We're gonna deal about this. What's the difference between hishtalut and what's the difference between everything else? Ashkahan have to stand back and everything is from God. There is a level over there, but you have to do your hishtalut. So you have to go and if. You have to go and if you need to work and if you need to make a business deal, if you need, whatever it is, you have to put it, you have to put your time, your effort, and you have to do it well. You have to do it good. But once you take a step too far, when you make it that the main thing is this and everything else is secondary, you think that that type of priority is, ah, this guy is going to be successful. When he thinks money, when he breathes money, when he dreams money, everything is money, you think that guy's going to be, no, it doesn't work that way. God says it's not going to go that way. You're going to follow me, and you're going to you're going to have success. You're not going to follow me, then you're going to have to go through the the you know the way of nature. So now, the the way that it worked with the taste. It was funny. I thought that I would be able to go through this whole topic in one day. What a joke I am to myself. Mm-hmm. So um, the the essence really is is that when somebody goes and somebody does the right thing. That will bring blessing and blessing into their life. When someone does something wrong and they sin, that will bring curses into their life, and it brings problems into their life, and it brings troubles, and they lose panasa because of that. The more good that you do, the better off that you are. The be- the the more bad that you do, the worse off that you are. And people that are able to follow other businessmen or anything, in, 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 any to be honest, it's anything. It doesn't have to be businessmen. You could see that this is stands up and holds true in this world. You see it. I'm able, I, you know, I speak to many people and, you know, I deal in many different situations and I see the situation firsthand. You have people that go and they're making a ton of money. But instead of doing the right thing with their money, instead of giving tzedakah, instead of learning a little bit to Torah, instead of, you know, doing the right thing, they do and they go into the wrong path. You see, you follow their path a year, two, three, maybe even ten years down the line, and all of a sudden you see problems that, that come up. And you see it. You see, like, like it's hard to see it when you're in it. Right. You, it's hard to see it that when you're in it. But when you're outside, you see, and you, when you know God's blueprint, and it says, if you follow my Torah, you're going to get this. If you don't, then you don't. If you are able to see that, you're able to see this in life. You're able to see it, you follow through people in their life and you see how this person was successful when they were younger and all of a sudden they were not. They might be making a lot of money, that doesn't mean that they're success. The, the, um, you know, something that I mentioned before that I was planning on mentioning it next week. That's what I was looking at my notes where I was going to mention it. But I mentioned it now also that you have some people that say that they go and Rosh Hashanah, there was a decree that they were going to make, let's say that year, $150,000. And they're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to work extra hard. I'm going to make more. And they go and they do and they finagle on this and they end up stealing and they end up making three hundred grand. They say like, ah, you see? I made more money. It doesn't work that way. When you think that you made more money, if God decreed that you're going to make 150 grand, if you work harder, you'll be able to make more money. You will. More money will come to you and you'll be able to make it. But it's not going to stay with you. You're going to go, you're going to put it in the bank or you're there, and then maybe two years down the line, you're going to go and invest that money and you're going to lose it all. You, you cannot cheat God. You cannot cheat more than you are supposed to get. Whatever you're supposed to get, that's what's God going to give to you. And that is the lesson that you learn from the man. The man says, God is going to say, I'm going to take care of you. You do what you need to do. You're learning Torah. Oh, you're righteous. You're learning Torah. Food is going to fall on your doorstep. You don't have to do anything. Oh, you're wicked. You think you're smarter than everybody else? Go find your food. Go downstairs, see if the hot water... Go go see what's going on in the desert. Tell me if the coyotes are still there. I don't know if coyotes are there. Whatever. Go see if the foxes are still there. So, the way it worked is also... Give me like about five, ten minutes and we'll we'll close it off. The 
the taste of the man also dependent on the level of the righteousness of the person. In general, the, the plain taste of the man was very, very sweet. It was so, if you, I don't know if you ever eat, eaten or drinking something very, drunk in something very sweet, it makes you nauseous. If it's the more sweeter it is. The miracle of the man was that even though it was the sweetest thing possible, it never made anybody nauseous. It was so sweet, it was so delicious. The way that it worked also is that it depended of what you imagined it to eat. If you imagine it to eat, to, to taste like something, it tasted like that. But that also, Medrashim says, it depends on your spiritual level. If you had a minimum of some sort of spirituality, then you had the, you had the, the variety of tastes open to you. How many tastes there were? The Medrashim tells it was 546 different types of tastes, the numerical value of Matok. That's how many different tastes the man was able to go and change into. But it all depended on your spiritual level. If you, all you needed was a little bit of spirituality, you have the full, the full gamut of, of taste that you have open to you. Whatever you thought about, it tasted, it, cha- it changed the taste, it tasted, it changed the smell, it changed the texture to a certain extent as well. Everything tasted to the, to the extent that you want and you uh, thought about it. But let's say the people that were wicked, the people that didn't have the ability to go and change the taste, those people, the man still adjusted to them for their benefit. It still worked for their benefit. So for example, the young and the elderly people, it was very sweet because they enjoy sweet stuff. So it tasted very sweet. The adolescent, let's say people, tasted more like bread like substances, which was what they enjoy and what's more beneficial for them. The sick people, it, tastes, it, 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 made, it gave the healing qualities. If it was a mother, it gave things that made her milk more beneficial for the child. Everything that it worked, it changed itself towards your need and necessity. So if you were sick, it made you healthier. If it, you, you're not, whatever it is, if you were nauseous, it tastes like ginger ale. I don't know, whatever. I don't know if that's a thing or not. But whatever it was, it, 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 it was the change to the food that was very, very beneficial for the person itself. The what happened to Elvrav? So the Elvrav, the Midrasha brings down that it says that they drank from the streams of of the melted man that that ran off towards uh, you know towards the sea. The the man in itself, besides falling down as like a spiritual food, there was more that came to it. It was it also perfumed the tents, so it had like a scent you know to it, and it made it smell like flower, like amazing smell. In fact, the woman didn't eat perfumes for the entire stay of the desert. The man gave them perfume for 40 years. They didn't eat anything else other than the man. Besides the perfume and the smell and the food that came out, it also came down from heaven, these like pearls and diamonds and gems that also fell as well. So the Jews were able to collect the food. They had the smell. They had everything covered for them at this point in time. Now also, the last point that I want to bring out is the spiritual effect that the man had. The man... The, because it was a spiritual food, what you eat also depends on your thought process. And in fact, there is a correlation to it. You eat spicy food, you have different, it also affects your dreams, by the way. Depending on the foods that you eat, if you have spicy foods and you had certain type of dreams, it's like, you're fine, it's probably because of the food. If you, so the, the fumes go into your head and also change your thought process as well. Uh, it, it, you, the most easy way to, to explain this is have you ever eaten a really large meal, like on any Shabbat ever? And you're like, you're right, so you're hibernating mode in like a beer, right? You have to like, <gasps> Like, where's my honey? You know, like, you know, you're like a beer, you're like clawing your way. Like, why all of a sudden are you tired? You don't get tired during lunch during the week. Like, why all of a sudden on Shabbat day and you're eating this? So when you eat too much, it affects you. It affects you to the point that it makes you tired. Oh, whatever. There's different reasons for it, but we don't have to go so capitalistic. But yeah, if you want to go there, you could. So the food in, in itself has, has an effect on you physically and spiritually. And that's why... I was speaking to somebody, I don't remember how, this week, that I was explaining to them the, 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 
the beneficial ideas of going to these like Kiruv Shabbatons, where you have like, for example, gateways or Achin seminar, whatever, you have these type of, of seminars that they take you on a Shabbaton for like a weekend, and they give classes over there, and they give different types of, uh, you know, proofs of Judaism, basically a whole Jewish environment. One of the most important things over there that people don't realize is that for a weekend, all you're doing is you're eating kosher food. If you don't keep kosher, people go over there, they go to this weekend, they get spiritually, you know, like attached. They're like, yeah, it's, it's true, it's the lectures, and it's true, it's that. But even if somebody goes and they're going and they're eating non-kosher throughout their entire life, and all of a sudden for like a weekend, their digestive system goes through like kosher food, good food, things that, things that are healthy spiritually and physically, it changes your thought processes and it changes your spiritual aspect as well. You, those people, that's why when they're in the, in the, in the Shabbaton, they're like, Amazing, God is real for sure. Like, I'm gonna keep it. And then they go out to the supermarket, they buy some non-kosher gum, some non-kosher candy, this, and then, and then a week later, they're back to their normal self. Like, what happened? Like, a week ago, you realized it. Because besides the intellectual capacity that you had on understanding the real facts of the Torah and real ideas of God, all of a sudden you're infused with your impurities now, of your non-kosher food, your non-kosher, you know, environment that affects you. So, in the same sense, the Jewish people, when they ate the man, they may ate a very spiritual food. Would that also change them in, the, in their emotional sense, in the physical sense, in the intellectual sense, to the point that they didn't have any more evil thoughts? It was able to cleanse them of the evil thoughts. The Jewish people were known as the Dol De'a, the, the generation of the knowledge, because they had this capacity of eating the man, and it brought to them the, the high level of knowledge. It, it gave them, think of it as smart foods. I'm sure nowadays you go and search smart foods, they'll probably give you like avocado, and omega-3, and omega-6, and omega-9, squared, you know, like all these things that it's healthy and it's good. You should be healthy and you should eat all these foods. But think about what the man was. The man was was healthy food on steroids in a healthy way. Like everything somehow unhealthy. That the Jewish people needed this in order to get to the Torah. They had the man 20 days before they got to Torah. So 20 days they were eating the man, they brought them to the level of a Dodea, they were able to go and accept uh, the Torah. And also the, the people that ate the man, their bodies didn't decay in the ground. It didn't decay. There was a spiritual food that didn't decay in the ground. There's also righteous people nowadays that they were buried and even 200 years ago, they were buried and they moved the bodies. They had to move them because whatever reason that they had to move them and they saw the body. 200 years later, the body is still intact. Naturally speaking, it makes absolutely no sense. The, the, the worms, the maggots, the decay process should take, you know, body maximum of a year that it goes in the case. But yeah, you see, you see people that have, that are righteous, people that don't live for this world, they live for the next world, their bodies didn't decay and their bodies went and they were able to stay to the, to that extent. So, that being said, then we're gonna open up for questions. The, um, we're gonna, we're gonna stop off over here, we're gonna pause over here on the story of the man, we're gonna continue Bezat Hashem next week. But one thing we see over here, is the the beneficial level of the man. One of the most important lessons that you can learn from the man is the is the lesson of panasa. Everybody wants panasa. Everybody wants it. The one thing that you have to learn, and you have to repeat yourself again and again. That's why there's there's a there's a skula to read this section in the Torah every single day. Because when you read it every single day, it imprints in your mind that if you follow God's Torah, if you follow what you need to do, God is going to take care of you. And that's what you read in the Torah. If God says you're going to learn Torah, you're going to get everything that you need. Look at the lessons of the man. The man of the Jews, the Jews that went and. They they did everything they need to, got the highest level, highest reward possible in this world and the next world. That is one of the most important lessons uh, that you can learn from the man. Let's open up for questions. Yes and yes and after. Then the body? Body, so the question is like this, aren't bodies supposed to decay? So the answer is yes, they are when it's needed to. So people, let's say in the, after, after they pass away and they put, and they get put into the, into the ground, in Israel they don't put you in a coffin. 
They put you straight on the ground like that. In New York, in America, I don't know if it's all in America, there's a requirement that you have to put someone in a coffin. But they leave a, little, leave a little bit of a split on the bottom, so there's some connection to the ground so the worms could come in. If you're in some mahogany little, you know, casket that you spend 15 grand on it and it's cushioned and it's, you know, Egyptian cotton inside over there and everything is amazing, that's not beneficial for the soul because the soul goes through judgment until the body finishes the decaying. Once the body finishes the king, then the soul, that's why it's generally it's about a year, and that's why the punishment in Gehenom and judgment is also about 11 months a year. So that's why they do it, you know, it's corresponding at the same time. However, that's when you need it. Some people are on such a high level that they don't need it because they can, they, they have no judgment, they have no, there's no Gehenom for them. They're going straight into, you know, to heaven, they're going straight into that. Because they don't have that, then there's no need for the decaying, and, and hence they, uh, um, their body stays intact. But for the majority of the people, the decay is very important, and they do need to go through that process. You're right. You're 100% correct. Yes? Two things. Sorry. Um, will, will we have some type of thing like man when, like, Mashiach comes? It's a good question. Will we have man when Mashiach comes? Something like that, maybe. I want to fix it. And also, right. the buffet of money. I'll have a shot. It's just you know, like, a general question. That I, it's a good question. I have to look into it. Um, another one is I... I've had Thank this, you guys. Like, this question for like years, I think, honestly. Um, learning like halakha has like always turned, turned like me off to like Judaism. Is there like a class or like, could you like give one about like the spiritual like aspects behind it, reasons for it? Because I just don't connect with it at all. So like rules and regulations. Like, why does God... So the why question, does, like, every little thing matter? And, like, why do we even have them? So, like, yeah. So the reason... The, the question is, like, why do, why do we do what we do, basically? Why, what's the really whole yes. point behind it? <laughs> so there is two things that you need to, that you need to know. This is, but you're, you're asking something that's very, very common to a lot of people. Like, really, does God really care if I do this? Does it really matter? So there's two different aspects that you have to look at it. Number one... There is a reason and a rhyme for everything that you do. To the extent... Everything to like... The everything that you do. Do we know everything? No, there's some things that are known as chok. Where we don't have all the... For example, paraduma. This is beyond our capacity. So, um, to understand. But there is a reason for everything that we do. But that's not really the level that you need to go... That you need to reach at. Think a bit like this. That there, You know, I have people that ask me questions. And they ask me different types of questions. And based on the questions... I answer, generally this is my method. I answer the question, and then I tell them, okay, listen, but really there's something else going on behind you. There's something else that you really brought you to that question. Here's the answer to the question. But there's some, there's another reason to it. The essence of why we do what we do in all the Judaism, the highest level of serving God is not because you know the reasons and you understand the reasons and you know all the Kabbalistic mystical reasons behind it. The reason is because God told you, do this, it's good for you because I told you to do it. And you're like, well, you're God, you created me, you created the entire world. You created the heavens. You know better than me. Then fine, I will listen to you. Like, regardless of how we think we're so smart and we need to understand the reason before we do it. And we did, in, in essence, we don't do that. You ask anybody that asks these questions, do you know all the chemical properties of Tylenol? No. But yet you take it. Why? Because you know that it's good for you to a certain extent. But like, why? Like, maybe it's bad. Maybe pharma is out for you, right? It's all about the... Um, Immunizations, ah, oh, you know, it's cancerous. They're controlling your mind, and the government did nine eleven. We could go on, right? So, um, so <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Jews run the bank, whatever it is, you know, uh, in Hollywood country, whatever. But I'm saying, I'm just kidding. So, or am I? I don't know. <laughs> so, um, the but the essence really is, is that the bottom line is, is that you're supposed to follow God's law because guess what? God knows better than you. God created the law, and God told you 
this is what you need to do. Everything else that you think you're so smart at, just remember, you're dealing with the creator and you're like a nothing compared to that. It's very like, overwhelming. It is, it is. But when you have the correct thought, really, you have an answer. If you have something in particular, we can look for the answer. We can find an answer of why you need to do it. Why do like different like rabbis hold like such different like views then? If it's just like one law. So when you're going, that's a very very heavy question and very deep question. In essence, the rabbis don't hold different views. There is the basic halakha, and that's what everyone says. There are different minhagim, there are different customs, there are many different different interpretations from different customs. There's the, the end of the day, everybody keeps Shabbat the same way, everybody keeps kosher yeah. the same way. Oh, okay, so some people keep a bet Yosef kashrut, which is a little stronger than whatever. People have a different, but the bottom line is, it's the same halakha that we're keeping. Okay. The 630 commandments, the Sephardim and Ashkenazim don't have different interpretations of the 630 right. commandments. They have the same thing. Yeah, there's different interpretations on it. I gave a whole class in the Divinity Series on how do we get to Machlokot, what does that mean, how do we have that, to how do Got rabbis make up laws. I have two classes on that, and I constantly re- recommend people to listen to that class because I go through all those details. But the essence is the essence really that you need to. The fundamental reason is is that what we do, what we do, is because God told us to do this. God told you to do this, and that's why we do it. There are reasons in ev- for everything, and that's one of the things that I tried to do when I speak about different holidays and different topics of mitzvot, I try to bring out why we do what we do. So I have that on Sukkot, I have a Pesach HaMatzah, I have on the four, you know, the, the, the four minim, the Abba minim, I have the love, the, I have re, I, I go and explain the mystical levels of it, but that's like a high and a low level at the same time. The really, the highest level is you do it because God told you to do it. So, sorry, also. Yeah. So why don't, so why, why is there a concept of like, Chumras, like, it bothered me. I don't know why. Like, Chumras, you think about it like a Hasidim. Halacha is like, why can't we, we, we just keep Halacha? Like, that's like enough already. Right. So why do we have to go above and beyond? So the first, so the question is, is, uh, is really in essence to the Hasidic perspective on it. The Hasidic perspective is going above and beyond. That's why Hasidim have long pails, for example, because you have to have help, but no, they're going to go longer. They have, they take things, the real understanding of a Hasid is someone that goes above and beyond, you know, what the required by law. What you're required to do is the law. You don't want to go above and beyond? Fine. You don't have to. Oh, but you want to. It shows something else. For example, so your spouse goes and says, hey, listen, can you please, uh, you know, I'm so in the mood of an ISIS. Can you please pick me up an ISIS? And you're like, sure, what flavor you want? Strawberry. I love strawberry. I need strawberry ISIS. So fine, you go to the store and you see four different variations of the strawberry ISIS. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to buy all four for that. Be like, why are you going above and beyond? Just buy them one, and they'll be happy. They just wanted one. But it shows how much you appreciate it, how much this means to you. Be like, listen, I care about you so much. You tell your spouse, I love you so much. And it says, I don't know which one you wanted, so I bought you all of them. Oh, but you could have called them. No, no, I want to show you how much it means. You don't buy your wife one rose, right? I mean, you could. It's still nice. You buy a dozen roses, right? You buy a dozen of these dying, decaying flowers and say, here, present this wasting I mean, whatever. It's very healthy to do. It's very good to do. You go and you, and you present this. And from, but why? Well, because it's, you're going above and beyond. Was it in the Tuvah? Do you have a requirement? Does it say in the Tuvah that you have to buy your wife roses? No, but you should. Ah, but you should. Because why? You're going above and beyond to show you how much it means to you, this relationship. So when a Jewish person goes and says, you know what, I want to go above and beyond what I'm required to do, it shows God, listen, I love you so much and I care about you so much that, yeah, this is what's required of me, but like, let me show you how much it cares. Like, I want to show you, I'm going to go on above and beyond. So it's not a requirement that you have to go above and beyond, but it's, it's a, it's a, a voluntary, you know, you know, idea on Judaism that says, like, I love it so much, let me go above and beyond. So that's the concept of Hasidim, that's the concept of doing all these things that they, well, not all them, but some of the things that they uh, they do do. But on that idea, are people that are doing the basics, 
not as close to God, not love as much, you know, because it's... It depends on the person. So your question is, your question, others like look down. Right. So the question is, God doesn't compare you, but like, well, listen, you're praying to me for five minutes. Well, your next door neighbor just prayed to me for one hour. So, you know, like, no, God has a requirement from you. 613 requirements, right? Nowadays, obviously you take half of them there. They're, you know, they're not applicable, but God has a requirement for you. You have to do that. You have a good relationship with God. Now, relationships work in a way that you effort that you put into it you want to go on a higher level of relationships so it depends do you have to you're not required to do it do you want to it depends like god is not going to look you well well you're not as good as somebody else god judges you when you come up to heaven god doesn't ask you how come you want moshe Rabbeinu? god asks you how come you weren't Yehoshua? How come you weren't who you were supposed to be? God judges you according to you, not according to anybody else. Not according to your neighbor, not according to your sister, not according to your husband, not according to your daughter or your mother, or your sister, or your brother, and only you. So, in essence, do you get punished for not doing extra? No, you don't get punished for not doing extra. Do you get rewarded for doing extra? Yes, it's called extra credit. That's the same idea of extra. You don't. No, it might. He might. Uh, so the way that it works is it's not. So so what you're asking is actually a very very good question. Like, does it show that you love God less if you're doing less? So not necessarily because um, God can. I don't know how what, what which example I can use for this, but like uh, you have somebody who gives his wife a present every single day, but he also has another wife. <laughs> that he doesn't tell his wife that he's not really his wife that he's with you know whatever so like that type of person but he's giving his wife a present but does it mean that he love her more no there's another guy that doesn't give his wife a present once in their hundred years of marriage does that mean that it doesn't no it doesn't necessarily mean the level of your love but it shows the level of your love so there's obviously a lot more fundamentals that go into it so for example that and i'm happy that you brought this up so let's say somebody goes and he's like a chassid level and he goes above and beyond on so many different things but the basic stuff he barely does he just like flies through it and just walks to walk talks to talk dresses to dress but doesn't do anything else about it like that doesn't mean that he's in a high level of connection to god but what happens is that let's say you have somebody who's doing only the basic stuff for judaism but they do it with their full heart they really do everything they do that person is a lot higher level what it appears to be what somebody who does more does so there's effort that comes into play with this more than actually action god judges you based on effort not based on action yeah Obviously, that, you have to do your actions. That 613. Was like my question also. Okay, good. So I'm happy that you asked it. I'm happy that you asked it. I'm happy that you asked it. I'm happy that you whatever anybody <laughs> asked. Okay. Anyway, other questions? No other questions. All right. Good. Okay. To be continued next week. Bezalat Hashem. God willing. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.